So Pastor Ben, thanks for sharing that update on what's been going on with us. We're pretty excited. It's been a while and we are all about young people, reaching them, building relationships with them and developing them, sharing the gospel in a relational way and sharing Jesus, right? That's what we're all about. I love the fact that this church always had a passion for missions and whatever it takes, they're there. Tiny little church up on a hill here in Hannes, but right there. Uh, re- reaching uh, the lost for Christ. But I want to start by saying that uh, doing God's work, honestly, is never easy. I could stand and say, yes, it's great. It's never easy. It requires a lot, and the journey's not easy. It always requires relentless trust, and that's what I want to share with you. I'm going to share a little bit from the Word, and then I want to transition into where we are at as YFC right now, and got a little video clip for you I want to show you so you can pray for us. But there are times when we do what we do uh, on a mission, you, you feel pretty excited. You say, yes, Lord, thank you for allowing us to be part of this. And I heard that a lot this morning. Tori shared during the worship as well that we are honored to be part of this, right? And we're like, yes, this is great, Lord, fantastic. But there are always times when we really like have, you feel this immense weight on your shoulders for it, you know? I don't know. Not that it's about you, but ultimately having to do it and staying focus on God when things get hard and difficult that you have to push hard and you need to have that relentless trust once again in God and knowing why you are doing what you are doing right that can get hard right so it goes both ways because we're human and we are constantly dependent on God to do the work because it's not about us it's really just about availability and aligning our will with his divine will for our lives so that he can accomplish his works, right? So he just needs us to say yes and be vessels so that we can go and do what he asks of us. So this morning, I am going to share with you about a guy named Gideon. You know the story of Gideon? All right, so I'm going to share out of the book of Judges just a little bit about his story so that, you know, I I maybe remind you, you know the story, but I just want to point out a few things and insights that I got um, while I was studying and preparing for this, all right? So, but before I go there, I just want to give you a little context. And I might have done this, a little context of where Gideon fits in. Because if you don't have context, you might just think, oh, this story sounds a little weird or strange or whatever. But I just want to be a little context so you get an understanding of the times that he lived in and what was happening. So, you know Moses? You know the whole story with the desert? He's gone. So Moses dies. Joshua takes over. Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land, right? He gets to the promised land that God promised them years ago. When they get into the promised land, they are met with a lot of hostility, as you know, by the Canaanites, and they engage in battle. And it was this, they got good victories. Joshua then says, okay, great. He divides up the promised land in different locations, and everyone, all the 12 tribes, they get their little space in the promised land according to their tribal inheritance and and also certain boundary lines, right? So this is happening. So, and they live. But Joshua also dies, and the elders, and they move on, and they leave these people here in the promised land. So now, for years, all they ever wanted was to enjoy this promised land that God gave them and said what they're going to get. They're here now. Joshua's gone. The elders are gone. So now... All they can do is honor the Lord, do as he asks, live on the covenant, which is really a contract between them and God or an agreement. Do it, right? And enjoy the place. God has given you boundaries, so this is your promised land. Do and and enjoy it. No, they don't do that. 
You know what they do? Uh, they move in right next to the Canaanites and adopt all their weird cultural practices and their religious practices and their worship practices, which is pretty, pretty nasty. So why is it that, to start with that, why did Joshua move all these Canaanites out initially? Because God didn't want his people to be morally corrupted by what these Canaanites were doing. All right, because he's a holy God and he wanted a holy people so that he could show the rest of the world, this is what I want you to live like. This is, we are to be his image bearers, in other words, right? So when we accept Jesus and we go out in the world, we are image bearers of Christ, showing the world that, uh, you know, it's not perfect, it's a tough ask, but all that to say God wanted them just to be separate from the rest of the world at the time so that he could show and point to them and say, hey, this is my people. I want you to look like that. But they didn't do that. They gone on and do their own thing. But as you know, as they were engaging in all these weird cultural practices and worship stuff and doing these sacrifices and being very proud not to be God's people, but connecting with these other people that really, that's sinning against God because they weren't doing God's will, right? Doing all this stuff. And this is what happened. That sin created the cycle. All right, you following? Yeah. You following? It created the cycle. They sinned, all right, being all happy with themselves, doing whatever it is they are, are doing. And then God's like, okay, you're sinning. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to allow these people that you are now partying with and hanging out with, I'm going to allow them to oppress you, all right, or to conquer you again. And that happened and so they got conquered, and they, and they got, got oppressed by these people until they see the error of their ways, and then they repent and say, God, help us. You know, and then God had to come around, and then God would once again come, and he would say, hey, I'm going to raise up a judge or a deliverer to deliver you from this oppression, and then uh, there will be peace for a season. Are you following? Good. And this happened, all right? And then they go, and then they go, and there will be peace for a season until they sin again, and the cycle goes on and on and on. This is pretty much the book of Judges. So the book, the storyline really lines out how God's people make really bad choices over and over and again. That's the storyline of the book of Judges, right? Over and over. So eventually, you couldn't tell God's people away from the Canaanites because it's just like this one thing. It was really bad, right? So all that to say... Um, they always needed God to save them. But in this instance, God really needed to save them from themselves, right? And they were in a really messy position right now. And this cycle, <laughs> downward cycle, happened six times over a period of 325 years. That's a long time of messing up. <laughs> and God raised up 12 judges during that time. Now, the Bible says that these were, in Judges 17, 6, it says, these were really dark days for Israel. Dark days when everyone did as he saw fit. And then verse, 25, verse 21, verse 21, 25 says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. And it was a period of disobedience, idolatry, violence, and when people lived to please themselves and not God. Sounds a little familiar if we look at the world right now. I see elements of that still here, right? And everyone became his own authority and acted on his own opinions of what was right and wrong. And this produced, of course, horrendous results. 
You following? Yeah. This is where it's at. So the book of Judges, there's hope here. When I read it, I'm like, okay. One thing that I'm learning here is that God's judgment against sin is certain. It's going to happen. But this is the hope. But also that his forgiveness and restoration are just as certain for those who repent and turn back to him. That's the message of hope, right? Can I say that again? His judgment is certain, but his forgiveness and restoration are just as certain. It's just as certain for those who repent and turn back to him. All right, so now we have a little bit of a background, a little context. You can go study, read more. The book is not the best book to read early in the morning or late at night. It's pretty violent and different, but it's there for a reason. God has placed it there. So Gideon is in one of those six cycles, and he's judge number five. All right, so this is, I'm going to just read a little of Judges number six and summarize it because I don't have a lot of time to read through it. It's over 40 verses, so I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to summarize a key part in a little bit of seven, chapter seven. So I'm reading chapter six from Judges, and I say this, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so they were sinning, that part of the circle, right, or the cycle. Uh, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years... He gave them into the hands of the Midianites. This was a superpower of the time. And because the power of the Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain cliffs and caves and strongholds. So they were running for the hills. They were gone. They, they, they didn't want to be seen by the Midianites because these guys were ruthless, right? And whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. So they waited for them just to build up and get all the stuff, and then they would come down and destroy it. And they literally, when they destroy, they come in, and they camp out on the land of the Israelites right there and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing, neither the sheep, the cattle, or the donkeys, nothing. And they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels, and they invaded the land to ravage it. So Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to God. You see that cycle? So they cried out to God and they repent again and hear the Lord. They want the Lord to help them. All that to say, the Lord says, okay, I'm going to raise up a judge to come and help you. And he sends the angel of the Lord to Gideon. And this is in verse 12. The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, hey, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So those of you who know Gideon wasn't a mighty warrior. He was a coward. Because at the time, he was hiding away from the Midianites because he was scared. There was a lot going on. He was preparing his, his wheat. Uh, instead of doing it on the threshing floor, he was doing it in this wine press, which was hidden away because they couldn't see him. He was hiding away. But the Lord said to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And I'm thinking, it's interesting when God calls us, he doesn't call us with the way we feel, how useless we feel, how... Messed up we feel, he calls us the way he sees us, and he calls him mighty warrior in the most difficult patch of his life, right? He looks back to the angel, and he says this to the angel. He says, pardon me, Lord? You say the Lord is with us? Did you see what's going on in our country for seven years? Did you see that? Do you know that? Sometimes when God calls us, sorry, God calls us, he calls us by name, following, calls us by name, and we want to get it off our chest right away, right? And he's getting it off his chest with the angel of the Lord. Look at this. Look at that. 
How can you, all these promises from our forefathers that we heard about nothing, we are struggling here. How is it that you are with us? The angel of the Lord says nothing. He just listens to him. Let him do it, right? Like we do when God calls us to go on a mission. We have all the reasons why we believe that God owes us, right? And the angel of the Lord says nothing. In verse 14, when he's done, he says, he turns to him and says, okay, now go in the strength you have and save Israel out of the Midian's hand. And I am I not sending you? So the Lord's tongue, take it all what you are saying. He hears you. He listens. And he's just saying, okay. I get you, but I got you, <laughs> but I need you now to just go because I'm giving you the strength. And then after he was called mighty warrior, did he deserve it or not? Well, the Lord looked at him that way. He got it off his chest. And then he says to the angel of the Lord, okay, um, well, if it is really you, Lord, give me a sign. How many times do we do that with the Lord? We say, hey, Lord, give me a sign that it's really you. Show me a certain way. So I'm going to summarize what happens here. And he says to the Lord, give me a sign, but wait here, I'm coming now. And he goes, the Bible says, and he goes and prepares a young goat, right? That's what we do when an angel visits you, you go pray a goat quickly. Um, and he bakes some bread, and he prepares some broth. And he comes back, and he, this is an odd piece, gives it to the angel of the Lord. And angel of the Lord says to him, okay, um, take that bread, put it on this rock, Take that meat, put it on top of the bread, take all the broth. What's going on here? Put it all over everything. Make a steak sandwich, right? It makes everything soggy and weird. And then the angel of the Lord says, take his part of his staff and he touches it and it's all consumed by fire. Gone. And the angel of the Lord's gone. And I'm like, what's going on here? But this is the interesting thing. And Gideon believes. Oh, this is the Lord, right? Sometimes when God calls us, I'm always of the opinion when people said, hey, the Lord was calling me to a mission, Tori, and I wasn't sure if it was for me and I needed confirmation. And then I went to the shop to buy carrots and right in front of me was a guy with a jacket and at the back there was something. And I'm like, Lord, I've seen this for the third time this week. This must be you telling me something. If it's me and I see the jacket, I was just like, it's a jacket. What's the big deal? But it spoke to that person, right? So God speaks to all of us differently to kind of confirm, either through his word, through people, through miracles, through prophecy, whichever way. But somehow, this is what was needed for Gideon. The next piece is very interesting. Now he believes the Lord's calling him, and he gets ready. The Lord says to him, okay, now we're talking. Remember, these guys were worshiping idols. All the idols in our lives, you can decide whatever that is. The Lord says to him, go get rid of these idols. That's the next step here. So if God's called you, gets ready, calls you by name, you're going to get things off your chest. You're going to need signs and wonders, and it's going to happen probably or not. Depends on what your relationship with God is, I think. There's some idols. There's some things you're going to have to leave around for this mission. You're going to have to leave it behind. And all that to say, he goes, he gets rid of these idols. And in verse 34, after that, then the Spirit of the Lord came on him. Do you see? Because we have to make place for the Spirit of the Lord to move in order. And it is a special anointing sometimes for a special mission. So if God gives you a mission, he will give you the resources and the power for you to do it. All right? That's kind of what we see. And all that to say, when the Spirit of the Lord comes on him, he blows this trumpet. And he gathers an army 
from all over, 32,000 men, you know the spot, right? And he's very proud of himself. Chris, I find it interesting. He's a military leader. He gathers his army. He had this whole journey with God and the angel. Now he's here, right? I have my army. So I would imagine he probably got ready with a strategy because he's a military leader. Like, you go there, you're going to do this. No, I don't know. And just as he's ready to go, he says to the Lord, I need another sign. You know, just give me another sign. And he, once again, this interesting approach, he says to the Lord, I'm going to take this piece of flesh. It's like a sheepskin carpet, I would imagine. And I'm going to put it on the threshing floor overnight. And I want you, Lord, to let all the dew be on top of that and let the ground be dry. So when I wake up, I want to see and then I know it's you. And the Lord's like, sure, I can do that. I'll take it off. Next morning comes and he could pick up this fleece, I don't know, and he could turn it and it has a whole bowl of water in. And he's like, whoa, <laughs> that's good, Lord. Uh, can we do it again? You know, but this time I'm going to take it and I'm going to put it on the floor and you're going to make the floor wet and not the fleece. The Lord's like, I'll do that. No worries. And I was like, was he doubting just before he had to go on the mission? And I realized and I remember in 2015 when we were ready to come to the U.S., God gave us our name. He, we, we had stuff on our chest and we were debating and God gave signs and all that. And we were ready on the airport with four suitcases and a very young family, 2015, January 13, flying to Boston Logan Airport. And I remember this, that night or that week was really difficult for me at least. And we prayed, Claudine and I, and we're like... Is that thing of Lord, your final, final word, is this really it? You know, so I guess it wasn't that he was doubting, but sometimes when God called you, you'll be in that position where you need that last little bit of the Lord just to confirm things for you. So there's a discussion there. You can come and invite me for coffee. I'll pay. We can talk through it. But he wasn't doubting. He was just looking for the Lord to give him that last little bit of whatever. And God was okay because God was showing grace in saying, I'm coaching you and I'm training you. You'll be okay. All right. So this is now showtime for him. So I'm jumping just so that we can make up time and not lose the, the substance of what I want to say here. Chapter 7, he's good. The Lord does these two last miracles for him. And now we're in chapter 7. And the Lord says to him, okay, you good? You got your miracles? You happy? I think that's way too many men. All right, can you reduce your 32,000 men uh, you're going to go to them, and those who are scared, they can turn around. Just tell them that. And he does that, and 22,000 of them turn around, 10,000 remain. Good. He's happy. The Lord gives him another instruction. Take them to the river. There's going to be some of them who's going to drink on their knees with their faces in, and others are going to scoop the water up. Those are the ones you keep. The Lord gives him a whole instruction. Go read it. It's 24. Chapter 7 is 24 verses. And he does that. And 300 men remains. 300. Now I'm thinking, Lord, when I enter the mission, I would love to have all the resources. My strategy, 32,000. I don't know what your 32,000 is to the Lord. Um, I need certain things in place to make this work because that would make me confident. And God messes it up. He says, like, listen, I got your box. I got you. We ticked, it, we ticked it off, but now we're going to follow my strategy. I'll tell you why. 
I will not allow that 32,000 men to take credit for what I'm going to do. I'm not going to allow it because they need to learn that I am the one. Now, the method they use is even interesting because at the end of the story, you see they don't even use knives or swords or guns or whatever. They use clay jars and lamps with trumpets, right? And the Lord instructs them at some point, break the jars, put up the lamp, blow the trumpets. And there's a lot of confusion, spirit of confusion in that camp with the Midianites, and they kill each other. Yeah, done. Mission accomplished. And I was like, interesting story. Two pieces that connects with me strongly in the story being on a mission is when God takes the 32,000 away, you're following, you can see what that is, your comfort, your convenience, the resources that you trust, your strategy, you become very vulnerable. And you become very uncomfortable because you are now fully, relentlessly having to trust the Lord for what's coming because nothing is about you. You can't take credit. It's not going to work that way. So in the story of Gideon, we see a powerful lesson unfold Gideon, in his desire for reassurance, put God to the test, God to the test, and he requested signs, seeking confirmation before saying yes to God's call. Think about that. But graciously, God fulfilled each one of Gideon's requests, but within this narrative lies a deeper truth. So I wrote this down. Often we find ourselves wanting God to answer all our prayers before we fully commit to his calling. And we seek assurance, security, and comfort before extending our trust. And we hesitate to step out of our own strength and rely solely on God's power, fearing to be vulnerable and uncomfortable within ourselves. But yet it's precisely in those moments of vulnerability and discomfort, and this I can confidently say, I speak out of experience, almost tenure on this particular mission, it's precisely in those moments of vulnerability and discomfort that the growth, true growth and transformation occurs. And God may sometimes ask us to relinquish and our comfort and security to step into a place of trust that goes beyond our own capabilities. And it is in this surrender that we find strength in his grace and his power. So I want to encourage you to reflect on your own journey and are there areas in your life where you are holding back, waiting for all the answers before surrendering to God's call? And I challenge you, yes I am, to let go of fears and embrace vulnerability and trust in his infinite wisdom. There's another piece, two things, vulnerability, and the other one was grace. We witness how God in his infinite wisdom extend his grace and patience towards Gideon. You saw that, right? God's patient. And no matter how many signs Gideon requested, God was always there faithfully guiding and strengthening him. And this exceptional display of grace is something we can draw inspiration from, especially in our interaction with others. And this is the part where God had to coach him, teach me, and I've seen this a little bit. Just as we, as God was gracious with Gideon, May we also extend the same grace and understanding to those we encounter on our journey of sharing the gospel. And let us remember that not everyone we'll meet, we meet will readily accept or understand the message of the gospel. Right? So some might question, doubt, or require further signs, just like Gideon did. 
And it's in these moments that it is essential for us to embrace God's patience and love with them. Because it's relational. That's how we share the gospel. I work with a lot of young people. That's why I'm excited to see this crowd here today in church. It's pretty cool. Um, just before camp uh, this year, we Tuesday nights, we had a group of students that walked in. It wasn't you guys. Don't worry about it. And this was one of the nights when I left and I was feeling a little discouraged because I have to feel encouraged when four students walk in from nowhere. They were from a high school up the road, Barnstable. And they sat at the back table. And the night was, we're all about students. We're all about being gracious and patient and building relationships with the students so that we can share the gospel with them. But this night was hard. They were all over the place. It was a difficult crowd, and I left there thinking, Lord, why tonight of all people? We had a big crowd of students up here in the cafe, and they walked in. And that night, the Lord said to me, well, it's, you need to show grace. You know it. And I said, yeah, I know it. I'm just a little tired. I had a you know, tough night. You have to show grace, because when they walk in, when students walk in, and you have to share the gospel. What are you sharing with them? Are you impatient? Show them love. Do you show them care? And I know all these things. But at this in particular point, it was just one of those nights I just really, I, I was great, but I just felt this way after I left. And I don't know what it was, a spiritual thing or anything. And man, did I clean up my act. And I did what I would always do. And I pushed harder. And we did and we cared. And man, oh man, living hope, crowd here. Those students came to camp. Those students came to camp. And three of them accepted Jesus on that camp. And they were there Tuesday night. They're part of the community. They come out every week. Can't get them to stop talking. They're quiet. They're excited. But they accepted Jesus. And you can see the transformation. And the lesson learned for me is why are we doing what we're doing? What is, the, what is this whole story about? It's about sharing Christ with the lost. And we need to be as patient as Christ would be with them. Even Jesus, when he invited, what's his name, Zacchaeus in the tree? To, he invited him to dinner. He invites, and when his tone is also filled with grace. When I read Jesus' stories, I always see grace when I read it. Right? I can't, especially with the Pharisees, I think that was different. I just hear him like, ah, a little louder. But it's that piece of grace is such an important part of what we do when we share the gospel. So when I share stories like students who accepted Jesus because we interact with them gracefully, because we know where they come from sometimes, there's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of dysfunction. They don't need it here. Yeah, they need to accept Christ and, and, and learn about Christ, and we are the ones who is Christ's image bearers. Let us show grace and love in that way because that's what we should be doing, right? And grace builds trust. Yeah, it builds trust.